With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I remember we would drive around, listen to NPR. Whenever the word Muslim came up, I would be like, oh my gosh, they know about us. They know of our existence. They just mentioned Muslims. How cool. I had no idea what they were saying because I was nine. But then there was a period for years and years and years where I heard the word Muslim or I read it in an article every single day. All of a sudden, it was such an us versus them kind of rhetoric being told. And I realized I was part of the them starting on September 12th, all the way through college. That was a poster child. And I remember one girl came up to me asking questions about Ramadan. And again, I was 12. Like I'm not a religious scholar. I'm just trying to pass math class. Hi, I'm Lena Sharif and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Lena Sharif. Lena is full of energy. <laughs> she is. She's full of good energy. Yeah, 100,000%. You know, it's funny. This is the month of Ramadan. And so we decided we wanted to air Muslim American voices. And shocker, I'm not that woke. I don't know as many Muslim people as I would like. So I literally emailed the five or 10 I know, <laughs> one of which who was Lena's dad, who I interviewed on my other podcast. <laughs> and he was like, you should talk to my daughter. And we met and she's really cool. We are into a lot of the same things in terms of choices in comic book and movies. Oh my gosh, you guys are both comic book nerds. And I say that in the most loving way. <laughs> I'm going to get you to watch Warrior, Sharon. It's going to happen. I, I actually really want to because that book, that the Maxine Hong Kingston book was always on like the the nightstand of, of my parents' bedroom table. And, and I just remember, I, I had never read it myself because I was, I think, too young to actually pick up a novel like that. But I'd love to... I definitely want to watch it. Yeah. So uh, Lena's Pakistani-American. She was born in America, raised in across Pakistan, the Ukraine, and Michigan. <laughs> and <laughs> as a Muslim-American, had some really unique experiences um, in this country in, in the early 2000s. And it's just interesting to hear her perspective on the world as a Muslim-American woman, as she, especially as she's grown older. Yeah. I really enjoyed her stories about her experiences after 9-11, because that was a pretty pivotal time in her life. She was in probably about middle school at that time. And I, I just found myself really relating to her as well as she talked about what it was like to, to sort of be seen as a representative of a group of people, whether that be a culture or a religion. 
or even in, some, in, in like overall an ethnicity. Yeah, it, it's, it turned into a really good conversation about you know what faith means to you and kind of when it can sometimes be taxing when you have to represent that faith to the outside world. So mm-hmm. we, we hope you'll enjoy our conversation with our new friend Lena. Lena, welcome to the pod. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, Lena, I guess I got to ask, I'm sure you've never been asked this before, but where are you from? <laughs> so, it's a it's a little bit of a complicated question for me. Well, how do you answer it? Well, how do you Yeah, how do you usually that? answer it when when people ask you that on the street it or in really the grocery depends store? It's on who's asking. If I know I'm never really going to see them again. <laughs> I'll just say <laughs> I'm from <laughs> I'll just say I'm from Maryland and but then nice. if it's like some like let's say it's a coworker I know I'm going to interact with them a little bit more or something I'll say I'm from the Midwest cuz I spent a good chunk of time of my formative years in Michigan and Ohio growing up there yeah but it's it's a weird question because so I was born in Ohio I was born in Cincinnati Ohio and then but when I was a year old, we moved to Pakistan, which is where my family's from, lived there for five and a half years, then moved to Ukraine, lived there for two years, very random. Then we moved to Michigan, six years there, back to Ohio. That's kind of like the school. Ukraine of the Midwest. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So, <laughs> what? <laughs> although I would say Ukraine is cooler. <laughs> but yeah. And then I ended up in the DC area for college and all this stuff. So, just a lot of moving around, but really depends on who's asking me. <laughs> What was that like? I mean, your early memories are probably very different from mine. Yeah. yeah. My very first memories are of Pakistan, just because, you know, I moved there when I was a year old, always had a million cousins there, like a whole bunch of family. I just, I remember running around a lot with them. But then when, so when we moved to Ukraine, that was the biggest Talk about opposite climates, opposite everything. So it was, it was where I saw snow for the first time. It was, it was different. It was super different. Even though in Pakistan, I went to an international school there. So I went to an international school in Ukraine as well. So that was actually the one kind of consistent, nice thing about moving was that I felt like my school was similar, where there were a whole bunch of different kinds of kids there. So that is the interesting thing about international schools, right? It's sort of, it's its its own little bubble inside a whatever area it is. So you're always Yeah, you around. had your kids in one of those, didn't you, Sharon? Yeah, we went, We my kids used to go to the UN school and that was amazing. I mean, it was just kind of, it's everything that you want things to be. My six-year-old for his birthday, he wants world peace. Because <laughs> <laughs> he so really precious. thinks it's like a thing that you can get for someone. <laughs> I think it ships faster on Prime, so probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll order it on Amazon, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I guess the question is because you went to these international schools, so everyone was different. But at what point did you say, "Oh, huh. well, <laughs> I know exactly when"? It was when we moved to the U.S. <laughs> when we moved back to the U.S., we moved to Michigan, and well, one, it was like I don't think at that. So we, when we moved back to Michigan, I had just turned nine years old, and. I don't think I was aware of my skin color, for example. I was definitely surrounded by majority white children. But I remember like at recess, as I was attempting to make friends, I was asking the other kids, so where else have you lived? Where did you move here from? Because I, I, at that age, I thought everyone moved. I had only been to international schools. Everyone else in my 
class had moved around a lot too. And then when I kept getting responses from kids that was like, I've lived here my whole life. And I was like, what? (laughs) It was mind blowing to me. (laughs) And that's when I, I realized, oh, moving around is not normal. Not everyone does that all the time. And at that point, by the age of nine, I had lived in three different continents, <laughs> countries. So it was, yeah, that was the first moment. Outside of, because I know you traveled around for your dad's work, but outside of dad's work friends, mm-hmm. were there a lot of brown people in the part of Michigan you were in? There were, in the part of Michigan that we moved to, my mom, there were like a bunch of my mom's cousins who happened to be in Michigan. So li- literal so, aunties, literal aunties. <laughs> yeah, literal aunties and uncles were there. And then But at school, not so much. But also the area of Michigan that I grew up in, there were a lot of Arabs and a lot of and a lot of Jewish kids, too. So there were other forms of brownness there, (laughs) but not necessarily South Asian, a ton of South Asian at first, although I think that has grown a lot, actually, in the past couple of decades. Did you ever feel like you had to to do anything to fit in? Yeah, probably a lot. I think it's just the sort of thing that every kid does, right, to fit in. And you don't even realize sometimes that you're doing it until many years later. And then you're reflecting back on your life and you're like, why did I do that? Yeah, you cringe, right? What do you cringe about? What do you cringe about? Yeah, what are the things? I'm trying to think of a specific example, but pretending to know whatever songs were on the radio. <laughs> like oh, I your still do like that. that. I still yeah. do that, Lena. <laughs> I, I, exactly. Same here. I mean, people keep telling me about this Harry Styles gun. I'm like, who? What? <laughs> just listen to Weezer, everybody. Come it's on. It's really a struggle. Spotify has helped a lot. I think I just look at their top 20 or top That's 40. True. You're right. We have tools <laughs> now that we didn't have back then. informed. Yeah. But I don't know. I think it's just like, I remember one time when my friends were over I would act like I was too cool for my parents. I didn't want to, even though I'm very close with my parents, I've always been. And it's like small things. It's the mannerisms, how you kind of quickly detach from your culture and your own heritage and past just to kind of feel like, no, no, I'm cool. I'm cool. It's like little things like that, that I'm pretty sure I did probably throughout high school too. You mentioned that there were Arab families in Michigan. So when I was growing up, there were only a handful of Indian families and they weren't all from the same part of India. And as you know, it's like different cultural like pockets based on like the state you're from. And But at the same time, we all just hung out because those were all the Indian people. So did that happen within the Muslim community? Because you know, yes. you're Pakistani, but they were Arabs, I'm guessing some Sunni, some Shia. So did all the Muslims get together at mosque together or were there dinner parties or was it no, they're the other kind? Yeah, no, you know what? I actually, so we were in Michigan for about six years and eventually maybe like a couple years in my parents. I don't actually know how they did this, but somehow they found a group of other Pakistani families. (laughs) (laughs) They probably looked them up in the phone book. (laughs) Literally have no idea actually how they did that. I should ask them about that. And they would have dinner parties every weekend. And they also happened to have kids who were around my age and my brother's age And so we didn't mind going. And that was then that's when I would get my interaction with brown people (laughs) and brown kids and stuff. So, so yeah, it is kind of funny, actually. The only time really I think that we would see other Muslims that weren't Pakistani was when we would go to the mosque, which would also only be just a few times a year because it's always around the major holidays and stuff. Yeah, the Muslim equivalent of like priesters. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
we talked about this before. You were in Michigan in 2001. And you were, what, 10 or 11? I was 12. Hmm. What was that like? I remember getting out of class and we were waiting outside of our, we were shifting from one class to the other. So had gone to our lockers, whatever. And I was waiting outside my next classroom with a bunch of my other classmates. And uh, the doors opened and the kids ran out and kids being the obnoxious preteens that we were at that time, they just were yelling, oh, we're being under attack. We're under attack. But they were saying it in this weird joking, laughing kind of way, because obviously when you're 12 years old, you don't know how to process something like 9-11. And so, and I remember just being like, what are you talking about? And we walk in and the TV's on and it's on the Twin Towers. And well, I think at that point, the first one had already fallen. And so it's like a little bit of chaos. We're walking over to our seats. We sit down. I look at my teacher and he's just sort of standing. And this is like a TV that was fixated kind of to the ceiling. You know, yeah, the one they yeah. play channel one on. Yeah, Exactly, exactly. So, yeah. so it was one of those. And I remember my he was my social studies teacher. And he was just sort of like standing just a few feet away from the TV, his eyes glued to the screen. He wasn't even paying attention to his students. And the kids are going nuts. They're like, what's happening? Oh my God, blah, blah, blah. Just craziness. And then we saw the second tower go down live. And (laughs) yeah, it was weird. And I didn't know what was going on either. And I was also, the kids were chattering, right? We didn't know what to do. No one I, knew what was actually happening. Yeah, it the, almost yeah, seemed like it seemed yeah. like it was like a movie scene. It didn't right. seem like it was really happening. Yeah, and I mean, now that I think about it, it, it probably was irresponsible of teachers to be having the TV on and us, us watching that live. It really messes with you. And then I remember because none of the teachers were really saying they had no idea what to do. They didn't know how to process it. No one was really properly talking to the kids about it. And then I remember it's like this weird nervous excitement kind of because you're like, this is weird. This is new. The teachers look crazy. Yeah, the grownups don't know what to do. Yeah. And then I remember going home and yeah, like I got off the bus. I walk inside and I was like, (laughs) me being the dumb 12 year old I was, I was like, I wonder if my mom's heard about what's happened. (laughs) Like, let me tell her about this crazy thing we saw at school today. And I walk in and my brother was in high school at that time. So he got home earlier than me. And he and my mom are just sitting on the couch and and staring at the TV. And that's when it, it hit me like a ton of bricks, the seriousness of the situation, just seeing the look on their faces. Was the seriousness, I mean, there's the, it's going to sound weird, the seriousness when we all realized, oh my God, shit has hit the fan, right? This isn't just some movie weird accident, right? But at some point, the realization of what that could mean for people that looked like you, when did that, to me, so the day of was just, this is a terrible reality. The days that followed were, were scary for everyone, to be very clear, in this country. Like, we didn't know what was going on. but And I only felt part of it because I was in college and people kind of knew who I was, the the friendly chatty Indian guy, right? But 
I had a Pakistani friend who wore hijab at that time, and she didn't come out of her room for a week, right? Because a realization of what was going on in our society, in our perception. When did that dawn on your family? I think, I feel for a month after, we just were watching the news every single day. Every, I feel like I, I know that news footage inside and out. I remember before 9-11, whenever we would drive around, listen to NPR, whenever the word Muslim came up, I would be like, looking at my parents and be like, oh my gosh, they know about us. And like, they, they know of our existence. They just mentioned Muslims. How cool. I had no idea what they were saying because I was nine or something. But, and then there was a period for years and years and years where I heard the word Muslim, where I read it in an article every single day. I think that's when... What was the different feeling versus the, hey, I heard it on NPR kind of moment when you were... Because all of a sudden it was, I mean, it was such an us versus them kind of rhetoric being told at that time. And I I realized I was part of the them. Oh, I also remember my brother saying how, I don't know whether it was like a few days or a few weeks after 9-11, but a bunch of his friends and... Of course, being in the area that we were, a majority of his friends were white. A bunch of his friends came up to him and they said, hey, man, if anyone messes with you, just tell us and let us know. And I think it also, I think maybe it also took my brother by surprise. It definitely took me by surprise. But, and now that I've had years to think on it more, I I almost wonder them being white and in white spaces, did they have more of an idea of how bad it was going to get? Well, because they were hearing things that were being said. Yeah. So. Do you remember anything specific about your your friendships or your own relationships changing at that time? With my own friendships, I think we were just young enough to not really understand what the hell was going on. And we were just young enough to be able to push it to the side and focus on whatever was the trending topic at that time in our middle school. So I don't feel like my friendships really changed. But I also, there was never, with my brother, his friends outright said, we got your back. No one said anything like that to me, but it also, it's because we just didn't get it. We didn't know what was happening. Yeah. Do you ever feel, and I had this happen to me in different moments in my life, but you were almost made to be a poster child of something as a kid? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think I was a poster child through college from starting on September 12th all the way through college. I remember kids coming up to kids I don't talk to. (laughs) They were like the cool kids. I was not part of that crowd. And the other kind of people kept it to their friend groups and stuff. So, and I remember one girl, she came up to me and was asking questions about Ramadan and Again, I was 12. Like, I'm not a religious scholar. I'm just trying to pass math class. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys invented math. Come on. I know. I know. <laughs> you would be surprised how much I struggled with math, actually. <laughs> My dad can tell you the horror stories of him trying to teach me math. But yeah, so so I remember just getting a lot of questions. And I remember feeling like I really need to get this right because, quite frankly, I mean, people's lives depend on it, right? I have to give a good impression of my people, my religion, all of it, because lives depend on it. That's just how it was. And I I felt like 
Sometimes I feel like I had, you know how you have like an elevator pitch for yourself? I think I had like an elevator pitch for for Ramadan, for the five pillars of Islam, for how to really tell big, important things and boil it down to two sentences. Yeah. Did you do that proudly or did it feel like a burden? I think I felt proud at first. And as the years wore on, it got exhausting. Mm, Right. And I continued doing that in college. I joined the Muslim Students Association. I was on the board, all this stuff. And then I just reached a point where I was like, why do I need to do this? Why is it on me? Why is it the burden on any minority or underrepresented group to be like, hey, we're human. Please don't hurt us. On a scale of, God, I feel like weird asking these questions after we just talked about this. Like, But on a scale of zero to 10, zero being completely removed and divorced from the culture and the religion and 10 being, I don't want to say orthodox, but a proper scholar, <laughs> literally is Ressa Aslog being that guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where do you think back then you were in terms of your faith and your relationship with your faith? Back then, meaning around the time of 9-11? The college years even, when the unfairness of having to be the ambassador and the poster child. Yeah, I would say I was like a seven or eight. I've always been fairly practicing of my religion. And it's a big part of my identity. I believe in it. So when I got to college, I was moving out of the Midwest. I was leaving the Midwest. I was so looking forward to having friends of color. I even knew, yeah, I knew in the back of my mind that this is what I need in my life. I need to meet people who are not white, sorry to say, but like, it's just, I just needed that. And so because I joined the Muslim Students Association and all this stuff, I happened to, a lot of my friends in college ended up being Muslim. And so when you're kind of surrounded by that, it's easy to just kind of, oh, and they were also all fairly practicing Muslims, a variety of range ranges within that. But yeah, yeah, I would say I was like a seven or eight. What about now? I think I'm the same, actually, in terms of my own personal practicing. I just don't go around trying to be a poster child anymore. You're not wearing the t-shirt, right? (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I need to do that. I don't, I don't want to do that to myself anymore. It took a toll on me. Yeah. And it's a lot of, it's a lot of pressure to get it right. Like you had said, I mean, I am not a poster child for Chinese Americans or at all. And I find myself second guessing my answer sometimes when I answer questions. Did I remember that right as as the reason why we have, I don't know, 12 animals in the Chinese zodiac? Just really specific things like that. And uh, I think this is what I learned when I was a kid, or I think that's what my grandmother told me. So there is a lot of, it's just, it, it's a lot for one person to carry because you feel like you have the responsibility of being the one source of truth for everybody who isn't you, right? Yes. Yeah. And I knew, especially in the Midwest, that I was going to be probably the only Muslim person that certain people that I came across with, like that they would ever meet in their mm. life. Yeah. And, and I felt- No pressure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, like I felt that pressure to really get things right and to show them the existence of a moderate Muslim. What does that even mean? So dumb. I hate that term so much now. And what does that mean? So- uh, The moderate is- Muslim- <laughs> How would you describe that person? I think, honestly, we were trying to just, I mean, back then, it was trying to convince people 
there are Muslims out there who do not want to kill anyone. <laughs> they just want to go to school. They just want to go to work. They want to hang out with their friends. That's it's not what you all. see on the news. It's not what you see on the news. Yeah, exactly. But it's, yeah. So I mean, just the fact that that argument needed to be made really makes me angry, actually, that for years and years and years, that was the argument. We still have to make that argument, right? I feel like a lot of minority groups, be it, you can't have a bad day. and That's not fair. I'll speak out of turn for a second. Women can't be assertive in a meeting because then you're bossy or the other B word, right? Right. Black right. people can't be angry because then you're that. We're all humans. We all have bad days. And that sucks if at a moment in time, you're not allowed to be you. <laughs> it's just, that's the burden. It's like, you can't have a bad day. Everyone has bad days. And I'm not purposely channeling other language, but it's just when the expectation of you're this representative, you might be the only person they see. And then you could inform a negative stereotype. That's a lot of pressure on, never mind a 12-year-old, a 25-year-old, a 35-year-old. Yeah. It sucks. <laughs> it really, it did. And not to say that I obviously had a good group of friends. I felt safe enough with them <laughs> and stuff. But yeah, it was always there. That feeling was always there. If I met my friend's parents or got went over, going over to their houses even sometimes, it was just like, yikes, what do they think? <laughs> oh, it's your friend's parents, right? That, never mind your friends. Your friends yeah, are cool. Yeah, exactly. But then it's, it just feels different. So. My folks, when I was a kid, they actually let me go to church with some friends. Like I'd spend the night with a friend, I get to go to church. Mm -hmm. But it never went the other way. I never brought one of my white or black friends to temple with me. And I don't know if that's because of me. I was too ashamed of it. Or if my parents, like my parents would totally play Indian music and cook Indian food when my friends came over, right? But I don't know. They never came to temple with us. I've been to mass. I've been to temple, Jewish temple. I've been to Southern Baptist churches and many Protestant churches services as a kid yeah. with my kid friends' families, but they never came with us. Did But did you ever was, invite them though, Roman? I don't know. Well, like I'm a kid, right? Like I don't know. And now that I think about it, I don't know. I mean, in college years, for sure, my parents totally cooked Indian food and stuff around other people, became more of a public persona. But as a kid, actually, I don't think there was a lot of Indianness at our house yeah. when friends came over because the name of the game was Assimilate. I don't know, Lena, what was that dynamic with your family and the faith and the culture and then the surrounding society you guys were part of? Yeah. Well, for us, actually, we, we didn't go to the mosque on a regular basis at all. It was mainly just for the major holidays, which are two of them per year. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, but, but that's also because our day of the week is Friday and living in America when the work week is Monday through Friday, you just can't really take time off and do that. Yeah, yeah. I remember in high school in Michigan, a few of the different Arab kids, like they wanted to start a Juma prayer, a Friday prayer, little, almost like a club. So we would, we would do it together because high school would end early enough where we could still make it to the Friday prayer. So we would hang around after school and do that. But other than that, there was no regular going to the mosque and stuff. What about daily prayer in high school? Yeah, no, I just didn't. I don't think I, I even did it. Again, it was like, a, again, assimilating, right? Yeah. If there's no space, literal space for me to do it, how can I do it? And I didn't have the guts to ask for that space at that age. What about now? Now, actually, even before the pandemic started, we've got a closet-sized room, which is 
not only for prayer, but it's also for women in the office who are maybe breastfeeding and stuff to, to like pump milk or whatever. And so it's a multi-purpose room and it's still not exactly, you have to book it and sometimes it's overbooked. And so it's not perfect right now, but it's better than what it was. I'll take it for now. But of course, now for the past year, I've just been working from home. It's been super easy to pray. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's been great. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and I remember even after college, my first few jobs, not only did I never ask about, is there a space to pray or anything? I would for some, I don't know why I did this, but for some crazy reason, I wouldn't even tell people I was fasting during Ramadan. Why not? I don't know. I think I was at that point, I was evolving into that phase where I'm sick of answering people's questions. So I kind of like just didn't want to deal with questions and be the poster child anymore. But for some reason, I was also suffering in silence and making up weird excuses as to why I'm not eating lunch that day. What what were some of the excuses? I'm I'm genuinely curious. (laughs) I don't know. I'd be like, oh, I got to run an errand on my lunch break. I'll see you guys. Like, it's just weird stuff like that. I remember it, at one of my jobs, it was at a PR agency, <laughs> my closest coworker, he was a black man. And I remember one time, it was just us two, we were brainstorming something, some whatever for a client. And and then I told him about, yeah, I'm actually fasting for Ramadan. And he was, you haven't told anyone that. I was like, I know, I know. And he, he's like, you've just been suffering in silence. I was like, I know it's bad, but I just don't want to deal with it. And and he was the only other person. Of course, I find another minority, right? Who I feel comfortable and safe to open up to like that. And Well, because we all have a thing. Yeah. I feel like though, I go back and forth with this, right? Because it's not to say people in the majority don't also have a thing, right? That But yeah, I feel more comfortable talking about my thing with people I'm pretty sure have their own thing. Now, yeah. Now I'm more at my current job. I am the only Muslim person on my team. Until last year, I was also the only person of color on my team. And now I don't have... I'm like, y'all, I'm fasting. (laughs) Only talk to me. (laughs) Talk to me if something is on fire. Other than that, I'm going home at five on the dot. Don't contact me. Right. Like, I'm going to be hangry all day. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's just funny. And now we have a joke actually with one of my coworkers. So funny, literally multiple years in a row during Ramadan, pre-pandemic times in the office, there would randomly be free food because yeah. someone yeah. had an event, whatever. Yeah. So he's like my go-to person. We both love free food and who doesn't? <laughs> but He would always be like, Lena, there's free cookies or whatever. And he would always, always forget during Ramadan that he cannot say things like that. To right. Me. <laughs> and then and then we started having we made like a cookie jar. Anytime he messed up and was like offering me a cupcake while I'm fasting, we dropped in a note that he owes me a cookie. <laughs> like once Ramadan is over. <laughs> so yeah. So now it's like I feel much more open and comfortable and but that's just like with my team, right? And I'm of course still willing to answer questions. I would much rather Someone that I know come to me rather than finding some weird YouTube video from a guy making them in his basement or something. I don't know. Wait, everything on the internet's true, isn't it? I know, right? <laughs> but yeah, I'm still, I'm happy to provide clarification and whatever, more information and stuff. I hear you've got I a good elevator it. pitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I don't do it for everyone anymore. Uh-huh. I had to set those boundaries for myself. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it sounds like you've also found a lot of both pride, but levity in all of it, right? You're able to show up as your whole self now, at least in these smaller circles versus how you did before. Do you think, Mm -hmm. what changed? What about that? Did you experience something to change that type of behavior or did the world change? What created that change for you? I think it was probably multiple factors. I got older. I was like, I'm not taking shit from nobody no more. You get that kind of confidence in yourself a little bit. I think that was one factor. Another was just, I think, having more and more conversations like these with my friends who are, a majority of them are other women of color. And just honestly, because it was therapeutic to talk about it with friends, right? To talk about their experiences and and yeah, it was it was just sort of like we were navigating it together. And my previous job, I worked at a small PR agency and it was like tiny tiny office and it was basically like me and two other black women and they they're like very good close friends of mine and I was only there for a year, but I'm I'm so grateful that I've met them and become friends with them because there were so many times where we something messed up would happen. <laughs> we would message each other on Slack. All three of us would go into a conference room and just vent. <laughs> Not and, being in it alone, right? Yeah. And it's just, you know, like when you find that safety in numbers, when you find your group of people who've got your back and and that's not just with friends, but also with my family, cousins, my parents, whoever, you know, my brother, it just, you feel more confident to find that balance for yourself. Yeah. Well, because you're not, something you said earlier, you're not suffering in silence. You might still be suffering, but you're not stuck in your own head. You're not alone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I got to ask about work. Like me, you hate the internet, so cool. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> you find yourself in this space. Like, yes. You get paid uh, to be on it all day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. what's interesting is, when we were talking, what got you interested in digital and social? What's kind of what happened in Egypt? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in college, I studied abroad in Egypt for a year in Cairo. And the reason why I wanted to study abroad in Egypt was because I really wanted to know what it's like to live in a Muslim country as a semi-adult, you know, being in college. And I made amazing friends from that trip. And a lot of them, other Americans, but they were all like other women of color too, you know, or other women who I became friends with. So I just have like this big bond with Egypt now. And so then when I came back, I was finishing up my senior year of college and maybe what, 10 months after I came back, the Arab revolution happened. And that was the reason why I joined Twitter. I was resisting for so long at that time because I was like, what is this? What are people tweeting about? What is that? (laughs) So That's when I saw, for the first time at that time, saw social media being used in a way where you're organizing people and movements and whatever. And What could ever go wrong with that? Yeah, at that time, (laughs) really. Back then, it was a force for good. And after having lived in Egypt for a year and having talked to my Egyptian classmates and roommates and stuff, at that time, Hosni Mubarak had been the dictator for 30 years. No one, no one thought something like that could happen. 
And these were, I was talking to kids who were my age, people think kids are optimistic, whatever, but no one thought that. And it was mind blowing to see that the the footage coming out of there from Tahrir Square. We would go there all the time. That's where we would hang out and stuff. And all these other different neighborhoods, the footage that was coming out of there, I was like, this is amazing. It truly, it was revolutionary at that time. Right. And Obviously, now it's been 10 years. I have a very different view of the internet now, too. Well, I, w- I want to talk about that because in your day job, and we, we don't have to talk too much about it, but you're at a pretty big publication. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and everything you just said was the upside, the optimistic view of what the internet is going to allow and provide. But now you see the opposite of it. Like you guys at Nat Geo are presenting the world as it is, literally in the most literal sense. And comment feeds are kind of a dumpster fire. (laughs) Yeah, it's really bad. Yeah, it's very, very bad. I was shocked even. I thought I had already been a little bit jaded about the internet by the time I joined Nat Geo four years ago. And then I joined Nat Geo and I was like, oh, wow. And it's not because of Nat Geo, to be clear. (laughs) No, no, no. no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's just incredible how a video of whale sharks can just create the most vicious comment thread. And you're like, how did we get to talking about politics when this video is literally just about whale sharks? It was just amazing. And I still, I think I'm processing it. I don't know how to make sense of it, much like the rest of America and the world, I think. It's just, it's scary. It is just scary. What the internet is now managing to do, the way that misinformation is spreading, the way... There's bots taking over the way that racism and homophobia and Islamophobia, whatever, is just like permeating through so many different posts of ours. And it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's wild. (laughs) How do you manage that? Like, it's just like, I don't even, that's why I walk away from it. It's not my day job. I don't want to deal with it, but it's happening is in these forms and you can't look away and not engage with them. How do you engage with people who... Because the worst of it is, if it's left to fester, next thing you know, (laughs) there's an insurrection. Yeah. I mean, I'm hoping in the next few months or so, we are going to have a more kind of rigorous plan to (laughs) combat (laughs) these crazy comments. But yeah, I don't, I didn't have a good way of, I didn't have any way of dealing with it. I don't, I don't still. My only way to deal with it is to not read the comments, which is bad because that's kind of part of my job. But (laughs) <laughs> there were yeah. there were some days where I was like, nope, just not doing this. I'm not going to do this. Especially if it was racist or Islamophobic or whatever. I was like, I'm not, I'm just, I'm just not going to do it. I don't have the mental capacity. I have a million other tasks that I can do, which I will do. And that's what I would do. <laughs> I just would avoid it. It was all I, I could think of to do. But now we're sort of talking about it more as a company. And I think lots of companies are talking about, okay, we need a plan. <laughs> like This is bad. So we're getting there, I think, but it's going to be a long process. And are you the person that is, are you the only person on your team that responds to comments? No, no, no. It's other people as well. That's another reason why I was like, I'm not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> someone solution to get it. someone else to do it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. But which is not great. Obviously I'm, I'm a team player, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm thankfully I, if I was the only person, I think I would have gotten a, a new job. I wouldn't be doing yeah. this. Yeah. It's too much. I know. I'm, I'm a big fan of hide, delete, flag, report. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
block, block, block. Right, exactly. Block user. Don't even go on them. Sharon's Sharon's all like, get on social more. And I'm like, the kind of shit we're talking about? Uh, (laughs) Can I just put it out there and go hide? Yeah, really. It's not great. (laughs) So I'm going to completely pivot. We've been talking about all sorts of things. I'm I'm curious to know about your personal life and your relationships because I hear you are newly married. Is that true? Well, it'll be three years later. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> not, not that new. It's not relative. It's it relative. Feels, I feel like kids my, these days. I feel like certain aunties and uncles still treat us like we're newly married. So right. it's, it's fine. <laughs> All right. I guess Remin and I are older. And yeah, we've been in our, our, our respective The longer you're longer newly married, that. the less pressure for the next thing the aunties and uncles are going to for. It's very true. Yep. <laughs> So was there pressure from your parents about who they thought they wanted you to marry? And what was that like? There was pressure. It was <laughs> pressure is an understatement. <laughs> yes, there was pressure. But I think a lot of it came from South Asian society as a whole. And it would kind of make its way <laughs> to into my parents' heads too. And then it would come through. But it's like, if it were entirely up to my parents, I don't think there would have been as much pressure as I really felt. But yeah, I mean, I would say pretty much right when I graduated college <laughs> through most of my 20s and then until I got married, <laughs> there was a ton of pressure <laughs> to get married. Right. Well, but was it to get married or to- Was it to marry a Muslim? Some, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that was just an understanding. Lena, you will marry <laughs> oh, a Muslim. Right. There was no other option. So it just yeah, didn't matter. Yeah. It was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when I was in high school and college, I really would push back. I'd be like, but why? I was more resistant to it. And then as I got older, I just was like, I actually want to marry a Muslim now. Well, say more. What do you mean? What do you mean? Yeah. I think I just, that? I remember as I got older, just having a realization that probably multiple realizations that marriage is hard. <laughs> it's something you have to work at every single day. And I remember having a conversation with my dad about how he was just saying he was like the most important thing whenever you try to find a partner is that you have similar values. And I was like, okay. I was like, well, what are my values? And and then I think I spent several years after that conversation really thinking about what are my values? What's important to me? And increasingly, I kept coming back to my faith and being a Muslim and being South Asian and, and just like all these things. And I realized that that is important to me. And it is something that I'm proud of. I went through sort of an up and down journey throughout my life of like kind of being embarrassed by it and ignoring it and then slowly embracing it more and more. I realized I was like, yeah, you know, I think being Muslim, I know I want to continue being Muslim and practicing my faith. So it would be nice if I also just married a Muslim guy too. I think I was almost also almost thinking of it from like a practical efficiency standpoint. <laughs> <laughs> So, we don't have to have two religious ceremonies. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I was just being, but I also, I remember kind of thinking, you know what, if I happen to meet a black Muslim guy or an Arab Muslim guy or whatever, and especially if they also were Americans too, like there's that kind of foundation to find similarities in too. So I wasn't just thinking like only Pakistani Muslim, blah, blah, blah. But in my head, I was like, yeah, I think that's like a big kind of value in my life that I go by. And it's like, it guides my way of life and stuff. So yeah, (laughs) 
Why not? Very efficient. That's very, very efficient of you. Yeah, thank you. Is he more or less Muslim than you from a spirituality standpoint? Probably a little less. <laughs> yeah. But that's the fact that we have an understanding that we, and we've like talked about it. You can't just like have an understanding and not talk about it. I feel like many people don't. I didn't know that for a long time. Like you got to communicate these things. But, <laughs> but we talked a lot about, we understand each other. Like he understands the background that I came from. I understand the background that he came from because he's also Pakistan. He happens to also be Pakistani American. We have that baseline understanding. And then we also talked about how we will never pressure each other to do one religious kind of act versus another. Like, oh, honey, did you pray today? I'm never going to do that. It's just, I have a very, your religion, I think is a very personal thing and how you practice it and whatever. It's up to you, right? It's like your relationship to your faith. And no one else is going to be able to know what that is besides you. And so we have a very much, we respect each other and whatever we're trying to do, we're never going to try to pressure each other one way or the other. If you were to go back and give your advice to your younger self, I mean, you've evolved so much, I think, even, even just hearing all of your journeys in this conversation. But if you were to go back to maybe that time that either you're in Pakistan or maybe just kind of moving to the Ukraine that time of your life, what advice would you give to yourself? Probably not to care about what other people think. Mm, yeah. just, I mean, I think it's so human to fall into that whole comparison thing, but it really sucks <laughs> to compare yourself that much with other people and to be like, what are they thinking of me and, or my family or the food I eat or whatever, you know, it's, such a time waster. I think that's the biggest thing I would tell myself. Just who cares? Don't worry about what other people think. If only we would listen. Right? <laughs> <laughs> if only. Yeah. I have to still remind myself that. <laughs> yeah. So Lena, we've only got a few minutes left. I don't know, Sharon, you think she's ready for speed round? Lena, you are so ready for speed round. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> What's something about you that no one expects? I think when people first meet me, they think I'm quiet. <laughs> and if I'm at a restaurant with friends, I get literally very loud, <laughs> especially if we're talking about some like a TV show or whatever, a movie <laughs> that was really exciting. I get quite literally very loud. <laughs> so people, I think, just don't expect that. What I like about that is... And not to dog on other guests, but the amount of people is like, oh, no one would expect that I'm an introvert. <laughs> you just said the opposite of that. <laughs> well, okay. And then that's the funny thing. So then when people do realize that I can be loud and kind of obnoxious, then they start thinking I'm an extrovert, but I am actually an introvert <laughs> because the way I recharge is just me yeah, on a couch, yeah, yeah. you know? Like I, think more, I think more people are starting to realize that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Especially during the pandemic. It's been... I've really enjoyed that. I kind of, there's a part of me that's a little sad go that things are, yeah, I'm sad that things are opening up again. Like I've got to, I've got to put pants on and leave the house. <laughs> exactly. You know, what's a, a book, movie, or a television show that has characters that you would relate to? Oh man. Well, I have been, if anyone who follows me on Twitter, I've been going on about this for months now, but I don't know if you have heard of this TV show called Warrior. It's Are you seriously? Are you yeah. hacking my That's, email right now? That is hilarious. <laughs> I'm because he he literally just emailed us 
what? Yes, two days ago. Roman had this whole moment about it the other day. We are doing an episode of Modern Minorities about Warrior. It is oh my gosh, I'm obsessed with that show. I remember I randomly saw an article that was, oh, a TV show based on a concept by Bruce Lee. And I was like, what? Bruce Lee? What? That's amazing. And I just knew it was like a historical kind of drama. Didn't know really much anything else besides that. And I love historical pieces, period pieces, you know, like I'm obsessed with that. So then the day after the insurrection, I was like, I need a TV show with martial arts and beating up racist people. That's what I need to watch right now. And I knew that that's what Warrior (laughs) contained. And literally you get that (laughs) within the first five minutes of the first episode of just this dude beating up another guy. But anyway, if anyone doesn't know what the show is about, it's set in 1860s or 1870s Chinatown, San Francisco. San Francisco, yeah. I think it's about like 10 or 15 years after the Civil War. And it's about this guy, literally starts off with this guy fresh off the boat (laughs) coming from China. And all you know is that he's there to look for someone. And that's all I'm going to say in terms of the plot. But this show, it goes into class warfare. It talks about the Irish working class. You talk about women's rights in this show. Obviously, Asian Asian Americans in Chinatown. It's an incredible show. And don't you know, watch it with your it. parents. No, never. <laughs> <laughs> but and it's on HBO Max. And I need so two seasons are out. And I need them to renew it for a third one. But we're going to make this happen, Lena. Yes, yes. I literally tweet about it all the time. (laughs) What is your favorite mom dish? Pretty much anything that my mom makes. That's a cop out. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) But no, she so it's really obviously a Pakistani dish for sure. I don't think there's any specific cuisine that I don't like. But Pakistani food will always hit the spot for me. But you're home for one night with your parents. Mom's going to cook you anything. Yeah, yeah. I think really, she makes this dish called Nihari. It's almost like a stew type thing, but you eat it with bread and stuff too. And you add slices of ginger and cilantro and and all that. It could be made with chicken or beef. And and so it's really, it's really yummy. And it's a perfect like winter dish. And I also have to add my favorite dad dish is omelets because my my dad really only makes one thing and it's omelets, but he makes great omelets and he would be really sad if I didn't mention that. So <laughs> shout out to my dad there. <laughs> That's fantastic. What's your least favorite food? Oh gosh. I don't, anything that doesn't have spice in it. I don't know. <laughs> no, but come on, what can you bland? veto? What's your veto? If it's served and you can get out of it because. Okay. This is going to be unpopular opinion, but I I don't really like cheesecake. (laughs) I think your passport just got revoked by the TSA. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. (laughs) It's not like I won't eat cheesecake though. I'll still eat it if that's the only dessert option, (laughs) but I I love dessert and, but it's not my go-to. That's the only thing I can think of. I see. I don't even properly hate it. So have you had Junior's cheesecake? I don't think so. See, I don't seek it out. So yeah, we gotta, (laughs) we gotta send you a slice of that. I mean, if you didn't say warrior earlier, I would have ended this podcast. Yeah. Oh, We're not friends anymore, Lena. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's the one question that totally alienates me from our guests. I don't know why we keep asking. Yeah, maybe just take that question out. <laughs> nah, it's fun. It's fun. Who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? Oh, man. This kind of question is so good, and I can never think of anyone good. I'll probably think of someone amazing when I'm taking a shower tomorrow. That's what I'm annoyed about. 
man, who would I want to interview? This is kind of weird and lame, but the only person popping into my head right now is Chris Evans, who plays Captain America. Because anytime I've seen an interview with him, he just seems super chill and cracking jokes and what it just seems like it'd be a fun conversation. <laughs> so I'll, I don't I'll give why. you Steve Rogers. I'll give you Steve Rogers. Yeah, I don't know why. That's the only person I can think of. Or honestly, anyone from Warrior. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Anyone, the whole cast of Warrior. I like, oh man. That the guy who plays the character Young June, I'm like obsessed with him. How he, and his whole thing is knives. When he busts out those knives, I'm like, bro, how did you do this? What was your like? I just want to know everything. You know what? Yeah, I'm changing my answer to anyone. We're starting a warrior fan podcast. I think. Yeah. Pretty, I, please, please, please let me know when you start that. I would yeah. be more than happy to join. <laughs> what does being a modern minority mean to you? Hmm. Okay, I think being a modern minority means taking the time and energy to actively learn about your history of your culture, your heritage, and really honoring the sacrifices and the struggles that have been made by your community and taking it forward, really learning that history, but also figuring out a way for us all to evolve and go forward together as a community. And I think that's great. Yeah. I like that too. Lena, thanks so much for just sharing your energy with us. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was really nice. And that's our show. Like what you heard, please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. At that point, all Muslims became societal pariahs. And being Black, you already feel some sense of being marginalized. Now I'm going to add to it. But I was really struck by how universal the message was. Remember your faith, being your best self, being a reflection of your religion when you interact with other people. I had grown up thinking Islam was different, and I was surprised at how common the themes were. I could separate the zealots from the Arabs that I saw, the Chinese Muslims. Muslims that I knew, the African Muslims, what I experienced was just a world apart from that. And I wanted to be a part of it. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.